Father, we come this morning to this amazing passage. We have seen uh, Jesus obey in our place all through his life, and especially in the garden that night when he submitted to your will to drink the cup that you had given him. We have seen him last week condemned in our place, and now this morning we watch him die in our place. Father, it's too much. It's too much. It's too heavy. It's too good. It's too rich. And I beg you, please, don't let me get in the way. Let us see Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So for better or worse, we are all being shaped by something into the shape of something. I'll say that again. For better or worse, we're all being shaped by something into the shape of something. It's happening all the time. You're being shaped. A really smart guy named James K.A. Smith has written a few books about this. And he gives an example of what what I'm saying when I say we're all being shaped by something into the shape of something. Uh, He doesn't say it exactly this way, but I think what one of the things he says is that we're shaped by shopping into the shape of shoppers. We're shaped by consuming into the shape of consumers. Here's what the story of shopping is teaching and shaping us to be. It's teaching us and shaping us to believe their message that something's wrong with you, and you know it. So when you walk through Walmart or Target or the mall, and you see the products with the happy pictures, you see the posters with the happy pictures, you see the pop-up ads on social media with the happy pictures, all of these messages messages that are saying, hey, look at this, it's not you. (laughs) There's something wrong with you. Another thing they're trying to shape us to believe is I buy to to belong. I choose to shop where I shop and to wear what I wear and to drive what I drive because it identifies me with a tribe, with a community. I'm an Apple person, not an Android person. You see what I'm saying? Back in the day, it was Mac, not PC. Um, So... It's shaping us to believe that I buy to belong. It's also shaping us to believe that they say, we have just the right thing to redeem you from your something's wrong and from your I don't belong. This is what you need, this product, this lifestyle. And finally, he says that this shopping is shaping us to believe a vision for the good life that they have that we should buy into. They're trying to tell us this is what it means to flourish as a human. So whether it's shopping or, or, or something else, someone's vision of the good life is shaping you. And the question is, whose vision of the good life is that? Whose Kool-Aid are you drinking? 
am I drinking? There's all kinds of other cultural practices that shape us too. Just think for a while later on, how, how does social media shape you? How does your political party shape you? How does your friend group, the people that you hang out with, spend the most time with, how are they shaping you? C.S. Lewis said it best, I think. He said this in Mere Christianity. He said, taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly, slowly turning the central part of you either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with, an, and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures, and with itself. Each of us, he says, at each moment, is progressing to one state or another. We're coming to the end of Mark. And beginning in September, all the way up until Advent, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul's letter to this church in Philippi. And in that book, we're going to hear and see Paul's vision of the good life. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. Paul says his vision of the good life is, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's a strange vision of the good life, isn't it? But friends, this is what I pray for us as a church. This is the vision of the good life that I pray for us that will shape us. Let us be a community of people who seek to let Jesus shape us into the shape of Jesus. Who let the life and death and resurrection of Jesus shape us into people who deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him into people who live to suffer in sacrificial love for the sake of the new life of the Spirit that Jesus wants to raise up in our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. Would you pray with me that that would be the vision of the good life that Mountain Fellowship would be shaped into? So this morning, we are taking another look at that story of Jesus that shaped Paul and shaped others into the shape of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus that's a continuation of the fulfillment and the fulfillment of the story that began in the Old Testament. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to see all through uh, this passage this morning allusions to the suffering servant that was promised in Isaiah 52 and 53 and also in Psalm 22. So let's begin. Let's look again at the story that we ask God to use to shape us. Verse 15, I'm backing up one verse. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. See, Jesus at this point had already had his face pummeled by the guards of the Sanhedrin. And now the Romans would tear his body to pieces. The scourging of Jesus uh, took place with a whip of 
leather straps that had in the tips of each strap embedded pieces of stone and metal that would rip his flesh off his body. All of this altering of his physical appearance was to fulfill the prophecy that we read this morning about the suffering servant in Isaiah 52. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Verse 16, Mark 15, 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together a whole battalion. This could be as many as 600 Roman soldiers. So they called the guys together. Hey guys, come on, check this out. Let's have some fun. And they proceeded to do what they would have done with any Roman king. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Of course, they wouldn't put thorns on a king, but they're mocking the ritual of the coronation of a king. But it's a dark, dark version. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, kneeling, Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. This mockery and the powerlessness of Jesus fulfilled the prophecy about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Mark goes on. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Those who were to be crucified crucified had to carry the crossbeam, their own crossbeam, to the place of crucifixion. And apparently Jesus had no more strength to carry his own crossbeam. So they grabbed Simon of Cyrene as he walked by. Jesus was exhausted. He was like the man being executed in Psalm 22 who said, my strength is dried up like baked clay. Simon and his sons Alexander and Rufus apparently became followers of Jesus and a part of the Christian community. That's why Mark mentions them, because his original readers would have recognized, oh yeah, Rufus, Alexander, the son of Simon of Cyrene, we know those guys. They were there. Can you imagine Simon of Cyrene telling this story throughout the years? Yeah, I I was the one they asked to carry his cross for him. Can you imagine what these words of Jesus must have meant to Simon of Cyrene? If anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For Simon of Cyrene, for his sons, that definition of discipleship 
had to have been vivid for them. Verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Golgotha was a a small hill right outside the city along the road, most likely. Um, And apparently it looked like the skull, the, the crown of a skull. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It was a, a tradition for the Jewish women to mix a narcotic drink and offer it to those who were about to be executed to help alleviate their suffering. It was just an act of kindness. But Jesus refused the drink because he wanted to experience with full consciousness the pain of the penalty of our sin. Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So Mark nor any of the other gospel writers give any details about the crucifixion itself. They all just say, and they crucified him. And maybe it was because They knew that their readers would be very familiar with what crucifixion looked like. These happened all the time. The people who were reading Mark's gospel would likely know exactly what a crucifixion looked like. But we do know from historians of that time that men would be stripped naked. They would have one foot placed on top of the other foot as one long nail was hammered through the flesh and bone into the wood to hold those two feet into place. Underneath the feet, they would put a little block of wood to use as a platform because they would stretch the arms out and nail each forearm into the wood of the crossbeam and lift it up. And so you can imagine the man would hang there from his arms and it would stretch all of this area in his chest and his torso would make it very difficult for him to breathe. In fact, most of them died by suffocation because they would get so exhausted they could no longer hold themselves up. They would use the nail and that little piece of wood on the bottom of the cross in their feet and use that to prop themselves up to get a breath. It would take hours and maybe days for a man to die of crucifixion. Cicero called crucifixion the grossest, cruelest, and most hideous manner of execution ever invented. He said this, quote, Even the mere word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. Crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22, 16 to 18. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled the prophecy about the suffering servant. 
in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Notice that Isaiah not only predicted the piercing, but the purpose of the piercing. He was pierced for our transgressions. On him was the punishment that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Now, before we read on in Mark, listen to these words in Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8. The suffering servant, the executed man, says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And now Mark 15, 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved himself. I mean, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So you've got these two guys on either side who deserved crucifixion, and they joined in the reviling of Jesus. Fleming Rutledge wrote this about this mocking that Psalm 22 predicted and Jesus endured. She said, crucifixion was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. It was a form of advertisement or public announcement. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more like an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure, she says. The mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle. And they were programmed into it, she says. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passers-by was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person hanging on the cross. Crucifixion is entertainment. Isaiah was right when he said that the suffering servant would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But why? He of all people should be esteemed and not despised. Isaiah explains, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus bore the grief and carried the sorrow of the ridicule that should have been mine and should have been yours. I can't get away from one little word that's in that passage in verse 29. Aha! 
it's an aha of condemnation, of ridicule that shamed Jesus that said, aha, you've been exposed. Aha, you're just another sinner who deserves death. But friends, the aha that was hurled at Jesus belongs to me. It belongs to you. But there's another aha that's even worse. It's the aha that God has the right to say to every one of us. And as we're about to see, Jesus took that aha from God on himself for us so that we would never, ever have to hear the aha of condemnation from God Ever, ever, ever. And so now, just as when in Egypt a plague of darkness preceded the blood of the Passover lamb being applied to the doorpost to save the life of the firstborn son, so now darkness comes just before God gives the life of his only son, the true Passover lamb, whose blood will save all those to whom it is applied. Verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Why this cry from Jesus? Was he giving up? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, he was not giving up. I feel so inadequate to explain and help us understand this cry of Jesus. I I had to get some people to help me, so bear with me. B.B. Warfield said, in the presence of this mental anguish, the physical tortures of the crucifixion retire into the background. And we may well believe that our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet died not of the cross, but as we commonly say, of a broken heart. Dane Ortland says it beautifully. He says, when communion with God had been Jesus' oxygen, his meat and drink, throughout his whole life without a single moment of interruption by sin, to suddenly bear the unspeakable weight of all of our sins? Who could survive that? To lose that depth of communion was to die. The great love at the heart of the universe was being rent in two. The world's light was going out. And inventing that righteous wrath, God was not striking a morally neutral tree. He was splintering the lovely one. 
beauty and goodness himself was being uglified and vilified. Stricken, smitten by God, Isaiah says. So that we ugly ones could be freely beautified, pardoned, calmed. Our heaven through his hell, our entrance into love through his loss of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Robert Murray McShane said, the answer to Jesus' why is this. God forsook him for me. For me. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who had been the man in charge of all that had happened up to that point, crucifixion. When the centurions who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. One Bible teacher said that if the first cry was a a cry of anguish, this cry was a cry of achievement. If the first cry was a a cry of torment, This cry was a cry of triumph. So how do we know that? How do we know that this was a cry of triumph? Because the curtain torn interprets the cry. It's the victory cry of Christ. God has spoken visibly to the world through the torn flesh of Jesus and the torn curtain in the temple that the way to God has been open to all Jew and Gentile alike. All have access to him. Everything that blocked people from the presence of God has been cleared when the flesh of Jesus was torn like that curtain. That's why we read this morning in our call to worship from Hebrews 10 that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and the Gospel of Mark, particularly this section of the Gospel of Mark, begin with the suffering servant being vilified and ends in victory. It begins with the suffering servant in torment and ends in his triumph. This is the story that we want to be shaped by. And this is why at Mountain Fellowship, we're going to rehearse it again and again and again every week so that it will shape us, so that we will be shaped by Jesus into the shape of Jesus. 